Our text this morning is from Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 35. If you have a Bible, now would be the time to open it. If you'd like, there are blue Bibles that are in the racks in front of you, in the chairs, and you're invited to take one of those. And if you're using one of those, you can find Mark 10:35 on page 1077 of that edition. At first glance, this text may seem a bit, uh, a bit random for Christmas morning, but at least, at least in my mind, it is the logical conclusion to the focus of our Advent season this year um, and our discussion even of the, uh, the, uh, the text that we had last night. Right? This is uh, the culmination of the four Sundays of Advent where we've been looking at the prophecy of Isaiah that all spoke about this mysterious servant whom Isaiah said was going to come and was going to bring comfort and rescue for, for God's people. And it's pretty, pretty unmistakable that Isaiah's servant was more than, more than just a mere man. He was something special. He was God's Messiah. He was our Savior. Well, this morning I want to bring that servant conversation to a, to a logical end. The servant's promise. That's what we've been talking about as we looked at Isaiah. The servant's arrival. That's what we talked about last night. And now, the servant's mission. And to do that, we're going to read a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples at the end of his public ministry, and not long before he was to enter into his very last week of his earthly life. It's Mark 10, 35, and we're actually going to read all the way through verse 45. It says 44 in the bulletin. That's my typo. I gave the wrong ending point, but I actually desperately need verse 45 because it's the punchline of the whole passage and really sort of the main focus of what I want to say. So let me invite you to stand as I read this aloud. It's Mark 10, starting at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Jesus giving his life, right? That might not be where you would have expected a Christmas morning sermon to start. Death is hardly a topic that you would expect or many would want to be a part of Christmas celebration. That sounds depressing, you say. It's not exactly the way that I want to spend my Christmas talking about or thinking about death. It's not what Christmas should be about. More than 40 years ago, there was a Christmas episode that aired on network television, an episode of MASH. 
MASH was one of the most popular, one of the most highly rated and longest running shows of its era. And it was a comedy, but it regularly mixed in serious topics. And the serious topics come from the fact that MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And the show was about a group of army surgeons during the Korean conflict. It was a fictional story, but it was set during the Korean conflict of 1950 to 1953. Not something that you would expect would lend itself to humor necessarily, but for the most part, the show did a pretty good job of striking the balance between the two. Uh, in the December two, uh, 2000, no, 2000, no, 1980, it was that long ago, the December 1980 episode of MASH, um, everything in the 477th MASH unit was shaping up to be nice and quiet. A truce had been called for the, for the holiday, and so there were no casualties that were expected. And everyone was gearing up to host a, a party for the local orphans, so the things were fairly festive in the, in the camp. And the main characters, Hawkeye and BJ, were just leaving their tent in the holiday spirit on their way to the, to the tent where the party was being held, and a nurse runs up to them and tells them that a sergeant has just arrived in camp with a wounded soldier who had been shot in the head by a sniper. And so they rush him to the pre-op tent and they discover that the wound is mortal. It's too severe. The man is not going to survive. And they're about to, to give up and go back to the party when the nurse finds in the man's uniform a picture of the wounded soldier's wife and children. And BJ, one of the surgeons, is determined to keep this soldier alive long enough until after midnight until December 26th, just long enough that his kids won't have to think of Christmas as the day their daddy died. A family's Christmas wreath should be green, not black, he says. And so the two doctors, the nurse and the chaplain, sacrifice their party and work late into the evening trying to keep this young man alive so that death doesn't intrude upon Christmas. It's incredibly moving and noble, but can we do that? Is it even possible to separate the green from the, the black? Can suffering be separated from Christmas? Not if you really truly understand the nature of the servant, the one who was born to suffer, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. I won't labor the point and I won't go into every deep and potential textual question that may arise and tease out all the grammatical constructions that we sometimes do. There's value in that maybe on different days and different occasions, but what I want to do is I just want to make four observations about the idea of service that I think we can pull out of this text that I think this passage gives to us. And there's no outline in the bulletin this morning because, well, because everything was printed before I got around to figuring out what we were going to say. But I think you can follow along, and I trust that you can handle it. Four observations about, about service. First, there is a service that we think we want, a service that we think we want. You have to admit that this is a funny start to the conversation that Jesus has here with his disciples. James and John come to Jesus, and they speak what, if we're honest, is the prayer of every one of our hearts. We just don't usually say it out loud directly to Jesus. They say, Jesus, you know, I want you to do whatever I want. It's pretty bold. It's like he's genie Jesus of the lamp. Here he is, Jesus. You're at my command, and this is what I would really like. Please, for you to do whatever I want. Or kind of like Santa. Here's my list. 
But you have to give Jesus credit because he doesn't, um, he doesn't zap them. He doesn't shut them down. He doesn't immediately confront the irony of their question as they speak to the Son of God. And he doesn't confront their arrogance of their wanting Jesus to do whatever they ask. He just kind of rolls with that and he kind of says, you know, I'm, I'm curious. Tell me more. What, ex- what exactly is it that you would want? And they respond. I mean, they're not deterred. They respond. They say, well, thanks for asking. We didn't think it was going to be that easy. But, you know, since, since we're here with the lists, uh, I don't know. How about, you know, when you, know, you get to glory, we get to sit, you know, like right beside you. You kind of set up some chairs right next to your throne. And, you know, one of us can have the right and one of us can have the left. How about, how about that? Nothing big. We just want to be really important. We want a platform. We want to be a professional influencer. Have people like us and, you know, honor us. I mean, you can get the first honor, of course, but, you know, how about us right, right there with you? So, so that people can come up to us and say, wow, how cool is that being right next to Jesus all the time? You know, and we could say to them, well, yeah, you know, Jesus, <laughs> he's pretty great. Yeah, he is. You know, perhaps I could, uh, I don't know, introduce you sometime. We could go to the, the throne room. I'll show you my chair. That's what they're asking. And we might pretend that it's about Jesus, though James and John don't actually seem to be too interested in pretending a a bit here. They're pretty transparent about what they want. But we might put it in terms that are maybe a a little more humble sounding when we, you know, think about asking a question like that. Reminds me, though, of that movie um, line from Sound of Music. Remember Uncle Max from The Sound of Music? He's the moocher house guest that hangs around with the Von Trapps and they're... uh, at their estate, and he's sitting on the veranda of the estate eating when he transparently sighs, Ah, dear, I like the rich. I like the way they live. I like the way I live when I'm with them. That's kind of how it is. I like Jesus. I like how important he makes me feel. And that isn't to say that there isn't a way in which Jesus does increase and magnify our value, and we'll get to that. But very transparently, at the very beginning, we have to ask ourselves, is this really the service that we want? And it is, at least at our base level. We either intentionally or unintentionally assume that Jesus is that kind of servant who gets us pie. That observation is observation number one, the service we want. Now, observation number two, in very sharp contrast to the service that we think we want, there is the service that we actually deserve. Back in 2011, another year, like I said, when Christmas fell on a Sunday, one of the pastors of the church where I was serving at the time had a two-year-old child who insisted, absolutely insisted, on carrying home a poinsettia after the service. Right? There were leftover poinsettias after the service, and the pastor's family was going to, was going to take one home. And there's just a short walk across the, across the lawn from the church building to their home, and this two-year-old boy thought that, he could, that thought that he could do it. He could barely get his arms around the, the base of it, but he knew that, he, knew that he, could, he could do it. His parents said, oh, you know, you might need some help, but he, knew he, he, he could do it. Me do, that's the favorite phrase of a two-year-old, especially a two-year-old boy. And he said, no, me do. He wanted the glory of bringing home the plant for himself. Well, he didn't make it very far. He dropped the plant spectacularly across the ground partway home 
And in the words of his father, this isn't me, this is his father's observation, but in the words of his father, there he stood with the result of his independence and pride in a pile of dirt and red leaves spread across the ground at his feet. Now, you might think that's a bit harsh. And if the parents had really thought that there was a danger in him carrying the plant, they wouldn't have let him. And if they really had been thinking that he was, you know, blatantly disrespectful and insubordinate, they would have corrected him. He was being a, he was being a two-year-old boy, and that's what little boys do. But actually, actually, there's the problem when it comes to all of our hearts, and there's the lesson. The desire for self-glory is just who we are. And we think that it will satisfy us, but it won't. And predictably, and justly perhaps, the result is the collapse of our wish in a heap at our feet. Jesus begins to tell the disciples about a cup, about a baptism. And throughout the Bible, both of those terms are often used in association with God's judgment, with God's wrath. I was reading Psalm 75 with some other Um, Christian guys earlier this week, and we were joking that we should look for connections in Psalm 75 to to Christmas. You know, it's Christmas coming up. It's like, let's let's look and see if we can find connections to Christmas. And one of the verses, verse 8 in Psalm 75, goes like this. It says, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And one of the guys kind of stretch and joked and said, well, it's kind of a stretch, but here's a, here's a Christmas connection. I'll, I, might, um, I might get together with some relatives on Christmas, and, um, and some people may have a glass of wine. And we laugh because, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a stretch. Psalm 75, verse 8, it's talking, about, it's talking about this wine well mixed, but it's not the kind of wine of joy. It's the cup of God's wrath. It's His, it's his judgment. And when Jesus says to them, they don't understand what they're asking, he's saying, you don't have any idea where this mindset of self-glory leads, where it will take you. Don't ask for the cup of the servant. And that's the cup that our arrogance deserves, that cup of wrath, that cup of God's judgment. And that's observation number two. So I know they're not written out for you, but observation number one, remember, was the service that we think we want. Jesus to bring us pie. Observation number two, the service that we actually deserve, the cup, the poinsettia in our feet broken and spread across the ground. Now, observation number three, the better service that Jesus actually provides. The gospel message of Christmas that is packed into verse 45 is that Isaiah's promised servant came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That was one of his favorite phrases for the Messiah, for calling himself who he actually was. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 that refers to the Messiah. So it's a perfectly appropriate term. And a ransom is a price that is paid to redeem someone who is held captive. That's what Jesus was saying that his death was going to be. It was going to be a payment made to redeem someone who is held captive to something. For what? For the consequences and the justice that would be ours, ought to be ours, for our arrogant demands that we make God into our servant, to do as we please, to bring us pie. 
Jesus gives his life so that we don't have to experience eternal death, though. That we don't have to experience the cup of God's judgment. We don't have to experience the wrath that comes from the baptism that he will experience, that baptism of God's judgment. He drinks the cup we deserve. The ransom that he pays is our salvation. It's like the angel told Joseph, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why. And this is how he does it. It's really impossible to erase death from our Christmas. The author Tim Challies wrote a piece earlier this week that was picked up by Christianity Today, and he expressed in it words and thoughts that many of you may feel. Tim and his wife lost a college-age son about two years ago. Unexpected loss. Painful grief. He's a good student, faithful son, loving brother, expectant husband. And Challies writes, in an instant he was taken and our world was shattered. Not a day goes by when he has not been on our hearts and in our minds. Not a day goes by when we do not miss him dearly and grieve him sorely. Not a day goes by when we do not long to hear his voice and see his smile. And on Christmas, the ache always deepens. And you know that. If you've experienced any kind of loss in your life of that kind of magnitude, or you've just simply lived life and watched the pain around, the loss is magnified at times like Christmas. It doesn't mean that the joy is absent, but the loss seems greater. Why? Because at Christmas, you can actually quantify the loss. You can look around the table and see the chair that used to be filled. You can look up at the hearth and see the stocking that is no longer there. You can measure it. It's one less stocking. It's one less place setting. Maybe you feel that burden. It could be a sudden tragedy, like I said, but it doesn't have to be. It's just sometimes the passage of time. Now, sure, there are additions at the Christmas table. There are extra stockings that are added as families grow, and there's spouses that come into families and children that are added to to the celebration. There is the expansion of table, but time marches on, and with every expansion, there is also subtraction. A family's Christmas wreath should be green, not black. That's what B.J. Honeycutt says as he tries to keep this mortally wounded soldier alive until midnight. And as hard as we wish it could be true, it's not possible to keep the black out of the green. The MASH surgeons, they work really hard late into the evening to keep this soldier alive, and they're exhausted, and the soldier is fading. What time is it? One of them asked. It's 11.25. It's still not Christmas. It still is Christmas. It's still not over. But there's no pulse, and he's gone. The soldier has died. And they sigh heavily, and they failed. And the nurse says, I'll get the death certificate. And then one of the surgeons, Hawkeye, walks over to the clock standing on the wall, and he opens the glass cover, and he takes the hand, and he turns it, and he says, look, he made it. 12.05, time of death, December 26th. The chaplain nods his head and said, Christmas should be thought of as a day of a birth. And so it should, because it was. But this is where our, the service of Jesus, the service that Jesus provides, proves itself better than our wishes. 
We wish we could just turn the clock. We wish we could just erase from the day anything that, that would at all be sad. But see, this is where Jesus' service actually makes it better. Because He doesn't just erase it from our minds. He doesn't just take the black and just sort of push it to the side. He transforms it by experiencing it Himself. Because not only is it not possible for us to remove Jesus' mission of dying from the celebration of His birth, not only is it not possible, it's not better. Because the service that Jesus gives, what He provides on Christmas, is not a postponement of the grief but a transformation of that grief. And this is where celebrating the birth of Jesus, if it is detached from the mission of Jesus, His mission of service through death, this is where if you separate the two, it's going to be empty. It's going to be a false joy. If you're experiencing pain and sorrow at loss on Christmas, if the death seems to intrude that just simply pushing it aside will not work. But if you allow Jesus to take that death and to transform it, or as Tim Challies writes out of the grief that his family is feeling today, he says, if Christmas was only an occasion for our family to gather and enjoy one another, we might well despair. But there is far more to it than that. Christmas commemorates an historic event of tremendous significance, not only the birth of a baby, but the advent of our hope. Hope because death is not the final word. Hope because this baby came into the world that death is defeated, not postponed, defeated. The loss, the pain, the grief, you could drug it, you could distract it, you could delay it, but you cannot defeat it. Only Jesus can. Callies writes, we do not grieve without hope. He's quoting 1 Thessalonians 4. Even as we weep, we do not weep without comfort. Even though it may be a day of sadness, it is also a day of joy, for Christmas is just what we need in our most difficult time and in our most difficult day. That's the better service that Jesus provides. Now, final observation, last point, fourth observation, the service that we're now able to give. Ironically, It's greatness that the disciples desire, isn't it? Make us great. And it's greatness that Jesus ends up providing. It's just not how they originally thought of it. This is the greatness that comes not from sitting close to His throne, but the greatness that comes through following His lead. Jesus tells them in verse 39, you think you're ready to drink my cup? Well, you'll drink it. Now, He's not talking about atonement for sin. He's not talking about the payment of their ransom. He's not talking about using their own effort to earn their salvation. He's not talking about that. He's saying to them, if you follow me and if you seek the better gift of hope that my service will offer, then your life in this world will be the life of the cup. But it will be a life that matters. It will not be a life that is easy, perhaps, but it will be a life that counts and it will be a life of glory because of it. It will be a life with eternal reward and eternal significance. Jesus is offering us greatness, real greatness. But He says that the path to experience that greatness is the way of the cross. We're exalted as great when we become a servant in the example of Jesus. Now, very practically, what does that mean? What does that look like? 
Jeff White, who's a pastor in New York City, so there's four applications that he can see, and then I'll add a fifth. First application, he says, is serving like Jesus means you serve all. Now, by all, I don't mean literally all, by like without exclusion, right? You're only one person. But it means you serve without discrimination. You don't pick your preferred category of people that you would like to serve. See, it's easy to serve the nice people, right? The clean people, the people who share your values, the people who with little messes, not the people with big messes, right? But Jesus didn't model service that way. He found the messiest. He found the most lost. He found the ones who knew that they had big problems. Second application, White says, serving Jesus means you serve in the ordinary stuff. All right, kids, maybe you've had this experience. Have you ever asked your parents, you know, can I help you? Can I help you with something? Now, I know this probably doesn't happen frequently, but occasionally you may go to your parents and you may say, can I help you with something? And then they actually give you something to do and you're like, that's not really what I wanted to do. That's not really what I meant. Right? See, right, this, oftentimes that's kind of what we say. It's like, well, how can I be of service? Oh, that's not what I want. Right? Because we, we like the flashy things. We want to do the big things. Right? Some of us, we look around the world and we say, I want to serve my, I want to serve my country, we say. And, and we, I'm praying that God would use me. Right? Great. But very few of us are giving public roles. Most of us, most of us are called to serve in the ordinary. We raise our children. We invite our neighbors over for a meal. We show up on time for our job. We give an honest day's work for the time that is given. We clean the church. We serve in the nursery. We collect the offering. That's what we do. We serve in the ordinary. If Christmas tells us anything, it says the greatness and monumental change comes from the ordinary. Jesus didn't run for office. Jesus didn't start a podcast. He didn't have a million followers on Instagram. He didn't lead a large nonprofit. He lived, he taught, he died with perfection. Then he rose and it changed the world. Third thing Jeff White says this serving like Jesus means is it means we serve without the need for recognition. Now, this kind of goes with the second one, but it's a little bit different, right? We don't just serve bigger, small things so that we can get even a thank you, right? I don't ask for much, some people say. I don't ask for much. I just want someone to say thank you. And thank you should be given. Don't get me wrong, right? <laughs> if you serve, you do something for me, I ought to say thank you. We ought to be appreciative to one another as much as we possibly can. But Jesus served before the thank yous and we should be grateful that He did, because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Finally, serving like Jesus means serving out of conviction, not convenience. We don't just serve when it's convenient, when it fits our schedules. In fact, that's part of what it's saying here. The goal is not to do, not to do acts of service so much as it is to be a servant. It should be our identity, something that just goes with who we are, not an outfit we wear on the outside but a characteristic that comes from the, the inside. Now, one last thing, one last thing I'd like to add, and this is mine. Being a servant means doing it for others with joy. That's what Jesus did. For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. That's what it says in Hebrews 12. Now, what joy could He have possibly had on the other side of the cross that He didn't have before the cross? He was the Son of God. He sat on the eternal throne. Why in the world would He possibly come down? What joy could there possibly have been that He did not experience? And there's only one thing, and it isn't because we're somehow worthy, but there's only one thing that He didn't have before He came down that He has now, and that's us. That's His people. 
for that joy, for the joy of service, of loving you, that brought him joy. That's why he came. And so we should serve others in the same way. David and Jason Benham were two brothers, had a dream of playing professional baseball, but they didn't know that they'd ever make it. Their father was a pastor, not a pastor who was as well cared for as this congregation cares for me and for my family, and so money was very, very tight in their house. They often didn't have enough for even just basic necessities. But the boys loved baseball, and one year they were 13 years old, they desperately needed a new baseball bat. And they wanted the Easton Black Magic. Now, if you were of my era, the Easton Black Magic was the bat. It was the bat that everybody wanted, and that's what they wanted. They couldn't get it. But their father, every year, had a tradition with his parents, so their grandparents, where the father would get one gift from his grandparents every year. And this one birthday of his, his 40th birthday, grandma and grandpa pull up in the driveway, and they get out of the car, and they give to their father a bat, the Easton Black Magic. His father had asked for it for his birthday. And dad takes the bat, and not begrudgingly, but starts running around the driveway, all excited, holding it up in the air as if it was his favorite gift in the entire world, as if he had just found a priceless treasure. And then he takes it over to his boys, and he hands them the bat, and he said, this is for you. It wasn't a hardship. It was because it was his delight to serve his sons. This is Christmas. Jesus' birthday is the occasion that he chose to give rather than to receive, to serve rather than to be served, to sacrifice what was his right and what was his due so that we could experience his joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that on this day we can celebrate your birth and your entry into this world and simultaneously celebrate the victorious resurrection that you have achieved, defeating the death and the pain and the suffering that intrudes even on a day like today. Lord, I pray that as we go through the rest of this day, we would be able to celebrate, that it would be an occasion for us of great joy, that we would be able in all of the world's pleasures to experience happiness. And yet, Lord, never let us forget that the true and ultimate and lasting joy, the defeat of all sorrow, is because of what you and what you alone have done for us. And so we go thanking you and celebrating in your name. Amen.